Mark chapter 12, we'll go to verse 41. Very well-known passage of Scripture. There came a certain poor widow. She threw in two mites, which make a farthing. He, of course, being Jesus, called unto his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For they, all they, did cast in their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. This is a great passage for teachers when speaking to children. I don't know that I've heard very many pastors speaking it to adults. And you wonder why. Because the truth might be a little too scary for the adults to handle. What is the truth? That God doesn't need your money. That's the truth. When we as Christians think that we are funding the kingdom of God, we have a complete misconception on whose wealth uh, is doing what. God's kingdom does not thrive from your wealth. God's kingdom does not rise and fall because of your generosity. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Why wouldn't pastors preach as often as they could on this text? Because I think pastors in our human condition, we forget where the wealth really comes from. We think that we need members who are generous for God's work to move forward. We stress, if those members who are generous leave the church, how can the church continue on? When they leave, we go bankrupt. That God's church is not funded by God, but by the people of God, particularly three or four families. And when those three or four families are gone, well, the work might as well fold up. What are we saying? God's not actually doing the work then, are we? What are we believing? We're believing that the wealth comes from people. Who is our faith in? The givers, not the one who gave the givers what the givers got. Obviously, that is not the case for all men, not the case for all women. But speaking from the position of leadership, I can see how easily it would be, how easy it would be to come to that point. I have set up safeguards in our church to keep myself from that. I don't need the temptation I don't need the anxiety, so you know the safeguards. I don't know who gives. I don't know what you give. I've said that many times. There is complete transparency in how our money is spent so that when people in our church do give, they know what it's going towards. But as a pastor, there's not transparency in who's giving because I don't know. Our bookkeepers know. We've got more than one for accountability. There's not just one person looking at the books. None of them are related, again, for accountability. It's not members of the pastor's family or any associate youth pastor's family. The bookkeepers are all unrelated to any pastoral staff members. The benefit of me not knowing who gives, I think, is more than one. First one is I don't have to stress about who gives, who doesn't, and wonder what will happen if they leave. Second benefit is they, they, as in the church, knows that I don't know, therefore can't use that to sway any choices I may or may not make. Members cannot say, well, brother, you know, you know, you know who we are, right? Wink, wink, you know what we do, wink, wink, right? And we really think that you should do this. It would be too easy. Temptation itself is not a sin. It'd be too easy to be tempted. Whether or not I would actually be swayed by the temptation, I don't know, and I don't have to know because I don't put myself in that position. 
But there are many men who are putting themselves in that position. They know who gives, and these people take advantage of that. And a lot of churches are swayed not by the Holy Spirit's moving on the heart of the leadership, but by the, the giving families who think something ought to be done a certain way. And I'm not saying that families and churches give a lot to sway the leadership. I think they just believe it's a perk. That I'm giving because I love God, but hey, if there's a perk of the pastor hears me stronger, well, I'm going to take advantage of that perk. At Meriden Hills, there is no perk that comes with giving. Uh, we're not going to put a brick on the wall with your name on it. There's not going to be a plaque somewhere. There's not going to be a certificate handed out to everyone who gave over $20,000. It's not going to happen. The only perk you've got is the knowledge of how the money is spent, and that's offered to everyone. I think a lot of pastors, I know this, I know a lot of pastors stress about finances. And I believe a lot of decisions are made in some way due to money. How can we get more people in? Therefore, more money comes with the people. How can we get people to give more? What can be done? What can be changed so that people will give more? Can we do outreach programs that will excite them? And if they're excited, will they give more towards the church? Because we're doing outreach programs. Can we do a better worship team where they're you know, emotional experience. And in that emotional experience, we have, bam, right, there's the offering right there in the middle of the emotional experience. People generally give more when they have a euphoric experience. And so if we can hit them with the offering during the middle of that euphoric experience, can we get more? I don't know if they're processing it in the exact way that I said it bluntly, but in some way they're thinking, what's the best case scenario where the most money comes in? It's pragmatic. You notice we don't take up offering here in Meredith Hills. I have people come to me and say, how in the world do we give? We're visiting, uh, we've been here a week, a month, you know, sometimes months, and we don't know how to give. I, it's a little odd, and I've said, well, we don't take up an offering, you can give them the boxes back there, or you can give online. They said, well, how are we supposed to know that? I said, you ask, can I tell you? <laughs> but I don't announce it. And one person, this was about six months ago, looked at me and said, I've never heard of such a thing. And I said, well, we don't want people coming to Meriden Hills thinking that we, are, we want you here because of your money. That is an honest statement. They were perplexed. They didn't know how to respond to that. They've never been in a church ever that presented finances in that way. And you know what's interesting? Since we started changing our philosophy, since we started doing things in this odd way, more money has been coming in. Double, triple the amount that it was before. When we were taking up an offering, it was easily half, if not less than half when offerings were being taken. And I was never pushy. Even when we took offerings, I wasn't a pushy pastor. But the offerings themselves can be a little awkward for people who feel like everyone's looking at them. We, half was coming in. We stopped taking offerings and gave them another opportunity where they had to ask to give, and almost immediately it started going up. And then the programs that we do for the community are not to get money from people, but it's to use the money that God does give to reach people. And there's a different motivation. The point is, I've said many times from the pulpit that we don't need your money. We being Meriden Hills Baptist Church, we being the kingdom of God, we being my wife and my family, <laughs> we don't need your money. God's wealthy. God will take care of this church. If you want to be part of what God is doing, then we are happy for you to partner with us. But if you choose not to, this church is still going to do what this church does. 
and in God's kingdom here in Meriden is still going to move forward with or without you. You can decide to join. I'm not saying that to guilt you or to, to in some way sway you. I'm just stating a truth. God doesn't need your money. We are stewards of what God has given us, and then it is our responsibility to use what God has given us for his glory, to further his kingdom, to reach the lost, and, and really just make God look good, bring him glory. I enjoy giving to things that matter. I enjoy giving my time to things that matter. I enjoy giving my energy, my emotional strength to things that matter. I enjoy giving money to things that matter. I came to the conclusion a long time ago that a lot of people were like me. That if there's something that really matters, you shouldn't have to beg them. If they see it, they're going to want to invest in it, especially God's people. How much they invest isn't my business. And Christ has made it abundantly clear here, the amount doesn't matter. The motivation behind it is what brings pleasure to God. God is pleased with the why, not the how much. The how much means very little to God. Imagine that. The why brings him great joy. Why are we giving? To what purpose? This woman gave more. Christ says, in her extreme poverty, her why must have been extremely strong to essentially give the last that she had, which was extremely little. And Christ commended her. In a day, I can't imagine how many people are giving towards the temple, are giving into the treasury. Uh, countless amounts of people of all walks of life, various stages of wealth, and of all these people, this woman is recorded for eternity, not just human history. The Bible is going to last into eternity of eternities. And this widow will be part of human history for eternity because of her why. That's pretty impressive. I was watching a video last night of a woman... <clears throat> And this woman was uh, preaching. I assume she was the pastor of the church that she was at because of the way she was speaking and what she was asking. So the video went like this. It was a church similar to this with the stage and chairs similar to these. And the camera was behind so you could see the backs of heads of people facing the woman as she's speaking. And she says, I, I was just given a prophecy of the Lord. She said, the Lord has just told me that he wants 21 people in this room to give $1,000, to commit to $1,000 right now. And, if, and whoever commits that to, whoever commits that thousand, he's going to bless you. He's going to give you that job. He's going to give you that house. He's going to give you that car you wanted, that promotion you've been looking for. He's going to give it to you, but you got to be one of the 21. Are you, I, I know they're in here, she says. She says, I know they're in here because God told me they're in here. God told me you're here, so I know you're here. And I, you know, basically, she's talked for like minutes, just kept going. And, and finally, people started standing up and coming to the front to commit to $1,000 because this woman told them, God told her to tell them to give $1,000. And she would not quit until they did. The video ended, and she was still going. I don't know why the video, the person recording thought, well, I'm done or whatever. People are standing up and walking up. They were lining up to commit to that $1,000. That's obviously very blatant. You guys over here smiling and shaking your heads like, what in the world? Yeah, well, there's churches out there like that. 
and obviously not all churches, not all spiritual leaders are that bold. Thank you. But I think there is there are different ways of accomplishing the same thing. Persuading people to give beyond their means. How many missions conferences have you been to or been a part of where it was said, give more than you have and then God will give it back to you? I mean, what's the difference of that in a Baptist church saying, you don't have 5,000, commit to 5,000 and watch God give it back to you? What's the difference between that and a woman saying, give me, give every 21 people, give 1,000 and God will bless you? It's the same thing said in a different way. One is more forceful and bold than the other, but it's essentially the same idea. Give outside of your means, they're told. Give more than you have. Watch God bless you. How many missions conferences have you been at where it said, uh, you know, give up on all these things that you have and give towards the ministry? You know, don't drink the coffee and don't go out to eat. Now, I'm not saying that that's not a bad thing. If you want to give those up, great. But why does the spiritual leader think it's their job to tell you what you should and should not have? Especially when the spiritual leader walks out and hops in their car and you look at their car and you look at your car and you're like, wait a minute. Give up my coffee. Their car's better than my car by like 10 years. 10 years and twice the size. I got five kids packing them into this small car. They got one kid in this massive truck. Money. What does the Bible tell us about money? The root of all evil is not money. It's the love of money. See, here's the thing about money. Money in and of itself is inconsequential. It is, it is nothing. It is paper. Money is what we make of it. Money has the value some human has placed on it, usually government authority. But even then, the government can say it has value, and the people say, no, it doesn't, right? So people have placed the value on that money. The money itself is just trash. And here it is, our love of that trash that has been placed value. That changes, by the way. It's not always equal. You can't buy the same thing for a dollar today as you could even a month ago, let alone five years ago, right? So the value of money changes, and we have placed so much value on the changing value of money. Our love for it, the Bible states, is the root of all evil. Essentially, our love for what money can buy us, which is the things of this world. So basically, the root of all evil is man's desire of the things of this world. And money is just the method in which we gain those things. So, if you evaluate the sins that destroy a church, the leadership of the church, you will find at its core a heart for the things of this world. Now, whether money was used in that process or not, the Bible also refers to it as mammon in other places. It's essentially the things of this world. That is the core. And when, a le when, when the leadership is no longer even trying to hide that fact, and they are outright from the pulpit stating it's money, 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 we need more money, like what? why are you even there anymore? That should be a massive red flag. And yet there are so many Christians in so many churches. They've normalized this. It's now not even weird anymore. It's like weird. It's weird that we don't take up an offering. That is the weird thing. It's weird that I don't preach on giving nearly as much as I do. And when I do, I'm telling you God doesn't want your money. That's weird. That's weird that it's weird, isn't it? It's weird that people have to ask me, how do we give to the church? 
it's weird that when we give to our community and I get messages from them quite often, thank you so much for what you did and how can we give to your church? And I say, please, we don't. The church did this to help you, not to get from you. It's weird that we as a church say, we don't want your money, we want to give to you. That's weird. Christians have normalized a worldly view of money even within the church, which is the last place that should be normalized. Even within the pulpit. From the very messages that these preachers are bringing. The love of money, if you just open your ears and look and open your eyes, you will see the love of money is permeating so much of what is done and what is said and the relationships. The pastor, let me tell you another temptation. I told you a couple already of when the pastor knows who gives, and that could be decisions are swayed and, and uh, <clears throat> other things. But one big problem, inevitably, inevitably, the pastor will be tempted to focus more on the relationships of the, of the wealthy within the church. Because they don't want to lose those families, and the best way to keep them is to be their best friends. So now the wealthy in the church are not only behind the scenes moving the decisions of the church, they are monopolizing the pastor's time. And you know what's funny? Probably they're the ones that need it least. You know, if God has blessed them greatly, they probably don't need the encouragement and the other things that a pastor can offer. You know, God's obviously been very good to them. And so the people who are struggling and the poor that really need direction and instruction and help, the pastor's like, look, but you don't tithe. Like, I'm going to go spend time with the ones who are giving a lot. And this person... Now has more reason to say, well, what's the point? So, you don't need to worry about that. I don't know who's wealthy in this church, and I don't want to know. And my time spent with people has nothing to do with their finances. It has everything to do with the need and my opportunity. I'm only one man. Can't be there for everyone as much as I'd like, but I can tell you, your bank account has no, play, no factor whatsoever in that decision. Spent a lot of time on this text because I don't believe... You're going to hear a lot of time spent on this text from almost anywhere else or anyone else at any time else. I'm curious, in your adult life, how many can remember an actual message preached geared towards adults telling you God doesn't need your money from this text? Anyone? Raise a hand. Not one hand raised. I mean, not very many of you in here, but the ones that are, the percentage is zero. I'm not shocked, unfortunately. And so that is why I'm spending time on this. A lot of pastors preach that to be a Christian, you need to tithe. To be a good Christian, you need to tithe 10%. And in fact, they'll say, well, look, 10% is the bare minimum. Like, if you really want to do what's right biblically, it's 10% plus offerings, tithes and offerings. So we're talking above and beyond 10%. They'll even tell you, like, if you look at the Old Testament, you're talking like, you know, 30 plus percent of your income is, should be coming into the church. I mean, this is kind of the numbers they're throwing out. 30% of your income. <laughs> whoa. Whoa. 30% of your income. I'm the pastor. I don't give 30% of my income. I do give. Not 30%. And yet that's essentially what they're saying. I've been curious. These pastors that say that, do they give? You know what I've discovered? To the shame of my profession. I've talked with a lot of pastors. I'm not going to say more often than not that is not the case. But... Often enough for me to mention it. I've talked to a lot of pastors who believe that they don't need to tithe. 
because they're the pastor and their time is the tithe. They literally say, well, I'm serving the church. My tithe is my time. And, and I look at them and say, well, then your members who, go, who teach Sunday school, do they need to tithe? And the worship team, do they need to? Yeah, everyone else does. Just me and my family don't. Like, why is your investment of time equal to a tithe and theirs not? <laughs> they got to come and listen to you, man. Is that the tithe? You know, what's going on here? It is interesting that those who preach the hardest to give the most sometimes give the least. Wow. And you say, well, how can we know that? You know, you probably won't because in a lot of these churches, there is no way to find out who gives, how much is received, and what is done with the money. There is no monthly statement. There is no business meeting that says this much came in and this is what was spent. And there is no way to know how much the pastor makes because his family keeps the books, has access to the bank account, and he pays himself out of the tithes. It is a family business. At best, a nonprofit. I don't know that I'd call it a ministry. When the pastor and his family have complete control of the books and his 15-year-old son is being paid on payroll by the church for the work he does by playing drums on the stage and the church doesn't even know it or how much, that's a big problem. And you know what's weird? That we give you a statement in the lobby every week of how much came in. You know what's weird? That every three months you have buy it to the penny how much came in and how much was spent out and where it was spent. You know what's weird? That you actually know how much I make. That's weird. Isn't that a shame? A lot of churches are a family business and finances are most definitely the driving force behind too much. And I'm telling you, God doesn't need your money. Why you give is way more important than how much you give. By the way, going back to that 30% thing, the New Testament never requires the church to tithe. It's not in there. It talks about people tithing. It talks about people bringing in money. It's never a command to do so. It only discusses the events historically as they happened where the church was giving. And the idea that we should be following the Old Testament mandate of tithing, the Jews in the Old Testament, their tithing was a combination of taxes to the temple because in the Old Testament, the government system that God set up was a theocracy. So we pay taxes to our government, the Jews pay taxes to their government, but their, their government wasn't big like our government, their government was small. They had some judges and they had the temple. So God said, basically, the taxes that I would expect in this government system, filter them all to the temple. God says, I don't need your money. Give them to the temple, right? Give them the temple, let's, let's grow the temple, let's, let's uh, grow the opportunity for worship and, and allow people, you know, the, the, the more access they have to the temple and the more that is there at the temple, the more people can worship. So that was God's focus. Filter the money into the temple and let it pay the staff of the temple workers and the tribe of Levi so that the nation of Israel could, could have a healthy worship experience by people who were dedicated to the ministry. So God was just filtering all those taxes into the ministry. But it was not... And it, it, by the way, it did equal over well over 20%. If you look at all that, it would have been a, a committed Jew would have paid well over 20% of their income. But it wasn't 20% plus taxes. It was all-inclusive. The tithe, the offerings were the taxes and were the, the, oh, their own offering as they desired. It was all of that. And now pastors are saying, you do the Old Testament tithing at 30, 20, 30%. 
plus the 20 plus percent to the government like you only have less than half of your income when you're done most people can't operate off of that and that is why god did not require us as the church to do that because the church isn't a government system so god is not asking us to operate as one and yet a lot of pastors want to do exactly that hey you owe your taxes to the church you owe us and they will guilt you into giving what they believe is their due except the church isn't a government system and you are now paying taxes to a government system the jews did not outside of israel and that is why god i believe one reason why god did not require it also i believe god in the testament of grace did not want people thinking his kingdom was all about money it's not and so the new testament we find that god says be a cheerful giver essentially if you can't give out of cheerfulness don't give i've said from the pulpit that you give until it hurts and then you stop how many times have you heard that before probably not you for the opposite give till it hurts and then give some more once you give past hurt that's when god's really going to bless you now we're back to that woman saying give a thousand dollars 21 of you and god will bless you we're back to that same kind of idea same kind of philosophy same thing said different way i believe that once you lose the cheerfulness out of giving you gave too much once you're no longer experience the joy oh man i'm so glad i can give to god i'm so glad i can give towards his kingdom if if you're not experiencing that then don't give it god doesn't need it as a pastor i'd rather you be joyful than broke so the widow's might what a great lesson and a great reminder for us even today and uh hopefully it challenged your way of thinking as it comes to finances and maybe you can pass that truth on to others let's go to john chapter 12. john chapter 12 verse 20. and there were certain greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast the same came therefore to philip which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and tells Andrew, and again Andrew, and Philip tells Jesus. So we have here a situation where Philip doesn't really feel confident going to Jesus with this request. The request of what? The request of these Greeks wanting to talk to Jesus themselves. Philip did not think it was appropriate that he would bring Greeks to Jesus. Jesus is already in the past. Uh, we find that woman saying, Will you please... Uh, do this thing for me heal my child and Jesus said well you know I came here for the Jews you know not for the the Gentiles and the woman said well uh, even the dogs get scraps off the table so you know with that stuff in mind Philip's like does Jesus even want to talk to these Greeks because he kind of said he came here for the Jews Philip in doubt better than just rejecting them altogether he, he brings them to Andrew and he says what should we do I mean we, we I kind of feel like Jesus doesn't want to talk to Greeks so should we bring them should we not bring them so him and Andrew together go to Jesus, and here's his response in verse 23. The hour has come that the man of God would be, should be glorified. Now, what is he saying? Well, he's saying the, the time is near where I'm going to die. I'm going to be lifted up, glorified. My death, resurrection, ascension is close. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corner of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. All right, well, we know that. If you've ever planted something, 
putting it on the counter, you're not going to get anything. You got to put it in dirt. The, the seed essentially has to perish, be destroyed, split open, so that what is inside can grow, right? And so Christ is basically saying, "I'm the seed. I've got to perish. I've got I've got to die, so that what can be accomplished will take place after my death." He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Verse 26 is not a salvation verse. It's a discipleship verse. He's not saying if you want to be saved, serve me. If you want to be saved, follow me. He's saying if you want to be honored, verse 26, my father will honor those who choose discipleship in this life. But if you choose discipleship, what will it look like? Verse 26, discipleship looks like this. You find me, you will see my disciples near me. Discipleship is not a claim. Discipleship is a lifestyle. You can claim to be a disciple of Christ. You can claim to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. But if when we see Christ, we do not see you at his side, you are not his disciple. That's his definition of discipleship. Where I go, they follow me. Where I am, they are. And the benefit and the blessing of discipleship, oh, they'll be rich beyond their wildest imaginations. They'll get that promotion. They'll get that car. They'll get that boat. They'll get that house, as, as the woman told us on the video I was telling you about. No. They'll receive honor. God will honor them. In what way God honors them, couldn't tell you. I think that there are a variety of ways that God could honor us in a variety of times, not all in this life. <laughs> Some of us won't receive the honor until eternal life. You okay with that? Are you okay with being an unknown, this side of heaven? I think there's a lot of people who aren't okay with that. I think a lot of men and women, Christians, leaders and not leaders, who will only serve God if the honor comes now. They are creating a brand and that brand has their name on it oh they're 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 growing something the church membership is growing the building's getting bigger in fact multiple campuses now but it's all wrapped around a personality of a person and the honor that is that is permeating that ministry is not going up it's going towards that one person or that person's team. They're just taking it all. And if the honor stopped, they would probably stop. They need to be a legend to keep going. Whereas Christ says here, a disciple isn't in it for the legend. They're in it for me. And I will honor them as I choose and when I choose. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. My soul is troubled. What does that mean? Anxiety. I've said this before. We're going to see it again in the Garden of Gethsemane when we get to that point. Christ experienced anxiety on more than one occasion. Pretty extreme. Which means, it must mean, anxiety is not a sin. Whoa, 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 Pastor Russ. Worry 
is lack of faith. And if you lack faith, you are sinning. No, worry is an emotion. What you do with that emotion is the potential sin. The emotion itself is just the human condition. If you worry about what God might do in your life this week, and so because you worry, you don't get out of bed, well, then there are going to be some problems in your life, some sins, some just natural causes of not getting out of bed. If you get out of bed and do what you need to do, but the worry is still there, well, then unfortunately you are experiencing the human condition, but your choices are still reflecting a good path. You're, you're, make, you're, you're making the choices you need to make for yourself, your loved ones, for God. I'm not saying it's okay to worry because worry has its own consequences. Worry can affect you uh, chemically in your body. Worry can affect you know, headaches, stomach aches. I'm not saying it's an okay thing. I'm just saying it's not a sin. Just like depression is not a sin. I wouldn't say depression is okay. Depression comes with its own consequences. It takes your mind in dark places. It causes your body to feel weak. It, it robs hope from you. And you don't, you don't feel like there's anything worth living for. That's not okay. But people can still make good choices while going through depression. In fact, it is often our good choices that help bring us out of depression. You see, when you let your emotions control your choices, your emotions win, and they eventually control you. When you let your choices control your emotions, your choices win and eventually pull you out of whatever emotional state you're in. Whether it's the euphoria of a new relationship and you're not married and this new relationship is just bringing you to all kinds of levels of excitement and you're tempted to be involved physically beyond what the Bible you know would allow but you make the right choices eventually your choices will bring you down from that euphoric state your mind will be cleared your eyes will be clear and you can now make the choices regarding this relationship that are best for your future not what brings more euphoria because you, your choices have pulled you down from that euphoric state. Opposite of euphoria is depression. So depression, I mean, euphoria is saying, do it, it feels good, everything's great, so much uh, hope in the future and just, you know, follow this path. Depression is, don't do it, everything's horrible, there is no hope, right? They're like opposites. But it's the same answer to both. The right choices, truth, pulls you down from euphoria and you see clearly. The right choice is truth, pulls you up from depression, and you see clearly. Now, there are medical conditions that affect us physically that the right choices aren't enough because your body has a defect in it. That no matter what you do, the chemical balance in your body is off. And you will suffer depression, some form of depression, some level of depression in your entire life because of a physical ailment or because of something you're putting in your body, possibly medication, to fix something else. The fix is worse than the, the original problem. I'm not a doctor. I'm not here to tell you to stop taking medication. I'm not here to diagnose your, your, your physical condition. I am stating that I recognize that not all depressions are equal and not all come from the same area. But I am telling you this. Depression is an emotional response to something that is going on in your body physically 
or in your life, in your soul, something. It's, a, it's an emotional response. And if it is not due to a physical condition, I am telling you, choices, the right choices, pull you up. And out of that emotional state, controlling and destroying. Just as the right choices pull you down from euphoria that would destroy you, because euphoria just does whatever feels good. Things that will, that will cost you much, hurt you greatly in a very short time. Depression is an emotional response. Anxiety, worry is an emotional response. Jesus had it. It wasn't a sin. He says here, verse 27, my soul is troubled. I'm bothered. I'm concerned. I'm anxious. About what? About what is to come. What's about to come? He's going to die. We know that he's concerned about it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays about it. He, he prays so intently, he sweats as it were drops of blood. His anxiety is so extreme, his body is responding in crazy ways. But he sinned not. In spite of his anxiety, he went to the cross. When your anxiety controls your choices, you'll probably make the wrong ones. Having anxiety itself is not the same. There's a lot of pastors who think otherwise. I've heard it. Depression's a sin, anxiety's sin. Like, so many, so many things are a sin. Like, man, I mean, there's enough sins out there already. We've got to create new ones. I mean, come on. Let's not make a new list of sins. The human condition, the emotions of the human condition, Christ had them. And we know he did not sin. He says, Father, glorify thy name. Essentially, Christ is saying, I'm concerned. I'm anxious about what's coming. But ultimately, I want the glory of God, the Father. And so I'm going to do what I'm going to do for his glory. Verse 28. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is no big deal to Jesus. He's lived for eternity. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Triune God, three persons, one God. You know, Jesus hearing the voice of God is... Every day to him. He is God. <laughs> but the people, verse 29, stood by, heard it, said it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. They heard the voice of God. And yet some who heard it didn't want to believe what they heard. And so they said, no, 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 that wasn't a voice, even though you could... Come on, man. It literally, the voice literally spoke a sentence. Thunder doesn't speak in, you know, it would have been Hebrew, right? Not English. Thunder doesn't speak in, in Hebrew. No, no, you're just hearing things, man. That was just a loud thunder. It's a clear sky. Come on, man. There's no lightning. What are you talking about? Some people are so strong in their disbelief. They will make things up to continue disbelieving. You can't convince someone like that. When literally they hear the voice of God and see Christ doing miracles, they still say, yep, he's of the devil, and that's just thunder. Like, what are you going to do with that person? We know people heard the voice of God because those who are willing to hear it stated it was the voice of an angel. They didn't know it was God, but they did say an angel. Then verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Jesus calls him out and says, no, it wasn't thunder. It was a voice, and you got to hear it, not because I need to, because you do. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from all earth, from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Who is the prince of this world? Well, it's not Jesus, because the prince of this world is going to be cast out. It's Satan. How could Satan have any authority in this world? Because God gave it to him. Satan only has authority that God allows him to have. And Jesus says that authority was only temporary. We're taking it back. <laughs> taking back the position of prince of this world. And when I'm lifted up, all men will be drawn to me. I think there's a double meaning there. Obviously, the first one is referring to what's causing him anxiety, the cross. When he's lifted up on the cross and dies, all the world will now have opportunity to be drawn to him and will be drawn to him through the gospel. But I also believe the double meaning of whenever Christ is lifted up, whenever Christ is glorified, and when people see Christ clearly outside of our faults, they are drawn to him. Now, many refuse. Many reject, reject. But God has designed the heart, I believe, that when God is lifted up and people see God, they are drawn to God. Then they have to respond yes or no to that drawing. God draws all men to him. God's desire is that all men are saved. A lot of Christians lift up God, and they're shocked when people aren't drawn to him. Well, how could that be? If we're lifting up God, how come people aren't drawn to him? Oh, they're a bunch of rebels, and they don't, they don't see truth, and they don't want truth, and that's the problem. No, here's the problem. They may be lifting up God. But then as people are looking to Christ, they're jumping up and down, waving their hands, saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Oh, but Christ. Yeah, yeah, Christ too, but look at me too. The servant of Christ. And then why, why wouldn't you be saved? Well, because you keep distracting him. You want to be the legend. You want to have the brand. You want people to recognize you and honor you. You are the one keeping people from seeing the God that you just invested your life in lifting up. Like you literally sacrifice so much to lift up Christ, then you're going to jump up and down and wave in people's faces as they're looking to the Christ you lifted up? Like, what are you doing? So much pride in Christian circles. And then we're shocked that our pride got in the way and people didn't get saved. My, I have a big fear that my life would be wasted. I've told my wife that often. We just talked about it recently talk about the things that we do and why we do it and what we're going to do. And I mentioned recently to my wife, just the other day, I said, I, my biggest fear is that I will waste my life. I do not want to waste my life. I know. I'm 39. I know it goes fast. You don't have to tell me. I know my kids will grow up before I, before I know it. You don't have to tell me. I know I will be dead before I know it. You don't have to tell me. I already know these things. And I knew them when I was 19, 20 years ago. I knew those things. And you know what? You and I were right. 20 years ago, went like that. I know that. And I am greatly concerned that in the next 20 years, which I don't see myself really serving past, you know, 60s as a pastor. I just don't see it happening. I, I know it can happen. I know a lot of guys that do, and I see a lot of damage done by them. Who knows what will happen? Maybe I'll be a spry 65-year-old man beyond what is the average, but I've seen a lot of men past their prime and their leadership is reflecting that 
And I think a lot of churches are growing and shrinking not so much by the theology that is taught from the pulpit, although that obviously happens. I think a lot of good churches are struggling not from a lack of theology but from a lack of leadership. It is a leadership problem. I mean, the pastor preaches truth, but the way it's communicated struggles, and his leadership before and after the message is non-existent, and how he deals with problems makes them worse, and hearing the truth just isn't enough. Because every other time in that church and all the relationships are falling apart and people are harassing and gossiping, like, why would you stay there? If I just want to hear truth, I'll listen to the radio. I'll I'll read a book. You want to be in a church where it's truth played out in the lives of people, not just spoken from the pulpit. It is a leadership problem. Part of the leadership problem is character, obviously. A man with lack of character, regardless of his age, the leadership's going to struggle. The other part is just ability. Some people, regardless of age, strong character, strong desire, just don't have the ability. It wasn't grown in them. It didn't come naturally to them. And leadership is both you're a born leader, but you're also a grown leader. You can be both. But if a leader was not a born leader, and if the leader was not a grown leader, they have a desire for it but never really fostered that, and the ability to lead is not there, it's going to show, which is obvious in so many churches. A bunch of young men, a bunch of middle-aged and a bunch of older men who have a strong love for God, but they just don't know how to lead people. And they have this assumption that if they just preach truth, everything will work out okay. Well, truth is great, but who's going to lead them? (laughs) It doesn't just happen. And one factor that I've seen that affects the ability to lead is age. And men who were once great leaders, grown or born... As they got older, the ability waned. Physical, emotional things changed for them. And as their leadership began to shrink, so did the impact positively shrink, and now the impact negatively grew. That is my concern as well, that that would happen. I have no intention of leading till I die. That is not gonna, unless God takes me young, I don't plan on dying in the pulpit. I don't plan in retiring at age 80 as a preacher. I don't plan on that. I will lead until my ability is no longer there. Then I will step away and let someone else lead. And I will continue on in something else. But the church is suffering, I believe, from a leadership problem. Christ is the answer. Not the men and women who are patting themselves on the back saying, Look at Christ while looking at me. <laughs> Look at Christ. Hey! <laughs> no. A true leader is going to point to Christ and then fade into the shadows. John the Baptist was asked, how do you feel about his crowd getting bigger and your crowd getting smaller? Does that bother you? And John says, nope, not at all. That was the goal. He must increase and I must decrease. I don't want to waste my life. That doesn't mean I need a large crowd. doesn't mean I need to be a legend or have a brand. I have no interest in those things. I don't want to, at the end of my life, look back and find that I invested it in things that did not matter. What matters? The human soul matters. And my desire to invest is not about numbers. It's about quality. As long as I'm investing my life into human souls, 
those in my family and those that God has brought into my life. As long as my life's invested in human souls, it will not be wasted. The amount of human souls that God brings my way is up to him. It is not my choice. To some he gave one talent, to some he gave two, to some he gave four, and so on. God will decide the amount of talents he brings to you. Then you will decide the amount of investment you place in them. That's your choice. Don't waste your life. It will be gone quick. And when you're done, what will you have done with it? Christ knows his time is coming to an end. And he says, I want you to be glorified, God. And God says, I am. And I will be through you. We're not Christ. But boy, would I love to hear those words. I am glorified in you. And I will be glorified. That is my heart. Thank you for joining us tonight. We will continue this next Wednesday. And for those joining us online, we hope to see you again next week.